Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hi, it's Brendan here, and I want to tell you about a brilliant new addition to Spiked. We have launched a new daily newsletter. Every day, straight to your inbox, you'll get a roundup of all of the day's content, plus exclusive commentary from the Spiked team. Spiked is publishing more and more. More articles, more essays, more book reviews, more podcasts. And without a doubt, the best way to keep up to date with all of our brilliant output is by signing up to the daily newsletter. It means you won't miss a thing and you can browse our content every day. So don't delay. Sign up today. Go to www.spiked-online.com slash newsletters. We have a heritage to protect and to wipe that heritage out. And even worse than that, to make that heritage something to be ashamed of. I mean, look, the United States has done some horrible things, you know, with African-Americans, with Native Americans over time. But we have much to be proud of, as does the UK. And, And to flush that down the toilet, it diminishes particularly that working middle class person whose life isn't glamorous. That identity with the country is so important. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Joel Kotkin. Joel is a writer and thinker based in California. He is Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University in Orange, California, and he's been described by the New York Times as America's uber geographer. He has an international reputation as an authority on social, political and class trends. He has written for numerous publications and he's the author of eight books, including The Next Hundred Million, America in 2050, the hugely influential The New Class Conflict and his latest book, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class. So, Joel, I want to focus on your new book, and we might as well start at the beginning. So you talk about the emergence of a new aristocracy in the United States and elsewhere, where economic wealth is being concentrated in a fewer and fewer hands, and also culture and ideas are being concentrated too, and policed and guarded and kept within a narrow strata of society. So for our listeners, I wonder if you could just kick off by telling us how you see this new aristocracy and what you think are the key forms that it takes. You know, to me, the the aristocracy, as opposed to the clerisy, which we can get into later, mm-hmm. are a handful of, of very, very large tech companies who have power, really, in some senses, the only thing you can compare it to would be the railroad barons, because they could destroy a whole economy by raising rates. But this is probably the most frightening of all aristocracies because of its power over the means of communication and its ability and now open willingness to pursue their agenda quite brazenly in terms of 
who's deplatformed, who's not deplatformed. Mm-hmm. And even what I find particularly frightening is the demonetization. So if you can't monetize your site, if you can't get on the web, you know, I mean, what happened to Paula? I mean, I have no great love for Paula one way or the other, but the fact that, that a handful of people, I mean, literally five to 10 people can decide to shut off huge parts of, of opinion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think eventually it will it will extend not just to conservatives, but to moderates, or even like you think of something like the Great Barrington Declaration getting deplatformed in, mm-hmm. in some places, or, you know, having the YouTubes taken away. This is scary, because we're not talking about Alex Jones and QAnon and, you know, the certifiably insane uh, elements <laughs> in the United States or in, in Britain, for that matter. You're talking about people who have just a difference of opinion. I think about this in a very significant way, because what you're really talking about is a group of people who have this enormous amount of power over information. And the way Silicon Valley operates, and I've been covering Silicon Valley since 1975, so I've been around for a while, it's the same people over and over again, mm-hmm. the same private equity people, the same venture capital people, the same sort of elite serial entrepreneurs. It's a very small group of people, and they are controlling huge parts of the economy. We look at finance, you look at insurance. I mean, you know, what's interesting to me is so many parts of the Wall Street community who have now just become Silicon Valley's running dogs. I mean, they're they're completely dependent on a handful of tech stocks for their gains. And whole industries, we're seeing whole industries being just wiped out and consolidated in a few hands. So you have unlimited wealth and control over the means of communication. That's a pretty scary combination. So how new is this? Because obviously there have been periods in history when wealth has been concentrated in few hands and people have had an extraordinary and terrifying amount of economic power. But how new is it, this unholy marriage we seem to be witnessing today, where not only do we have this small group of people with an extraordinary amount of economic power, but also with the desire, seemingly, and the means to control the means of communication, what may and may not be said in public life, who may or may not speak. Is that an entirely new phenomenon that these two things have come together in this in such a graphic way? Well, that's why we call it neo feudalism because <laughs> you know part of it is that was what the regime of the Middle Ages, particularly the early part of the Middle Ages, was about. In this case, the aristocracy lined up with the Catholic Church or in Russia the Orthodox Church, and they were able to say, "Hey, you know, these are not acceptable thoughts," mm. and the road to respectability and access to education was all controlled by a small group of people who had a specific ideology. And, you know, in a lot of ways, our universities are beginning to look more like the University of Paris in the 13th century doing treatises on the on the existence of demons. I mean, you know, <laughs> this is where we're headed. Now, in the past, let's go back to the Gilded Age and to the period in which a small group of industrialists in Germany, the United States, you know, Russia were able to dominate their economies. But because the means of communication were different, because we had the printing press and because you didn't need enormous amounts of money to have an alternative point of view. You know, my grandfather owned the vaudeville theaters in Brooklyn, New York, 
and they could have, you know, stuff that was just different. Mm. And I'm sure would have been completely <laughs> censored today. Mm. Now you have the, not only the control over news, but you increasingly have the control of the culture. You, you think about most people today, where are they getting their entertainment? They're getting it from Netflix. They're getting it from Amazon. They're getting it from Apple. So the same people also control culture. I mean, I'm astounded mm. how uniform in cultural point of view, much of the films that are coming out are like, you know, I think Aldous Huxley wrote that a technologically based dictatorship will never be overthrown. You know, whereas we can talk about 1984 and Orwell, you know, obviously Orwell could see a lot of things. And there were some aspects of Orwell's analysis that applies it's really the brave new world that we're, we're moving into. And another book that I think shows us a little bit is a, a book called The Mortal Life that talks about a world controlled by Silicon Valley in about 20 or 30 years, in which essentially the state has completely d- disappeared. There are eight or 10 companies that control virtually everything. And I'm covering right now, it's very exciting stuff, even if we start looking at space. Who's going to control the space in the future? Elon Musk, you know, Jeff Bezos. I mean, you know, Jeff said the other day, he said the thing he's really interested in is Blue Origin. So we're talking about moving even into the space era, which we're in the beginnings of, also controlled by the same small group of people. It's fascinating the way you describe these people in your book and the comparisons you make with the feudalistic era and the current era. But one thing that will strike many listeners, I'm sure, is that the kinds of people you're talking about who have an extraordinary amount of control over culture, over opinion, over the contemporary public square, Netflix, Amazon, all these kinds of people will conceive of themselves as progressive. They conceive of themselves as good people doing good things and doing their best to assist people. So I'm sure if you were to suggest to any of these folks that they are actually reminiscent of a more feudalistic era, that they are engaged in one of the most extraordinary concentrations of wealth and power in human history, they would look at you agog. So how much of a disparity do you think there is between how they see themselves and how they really are? You know, this reminds me of something I always keep in mind. My One of my people who mentored me was a man named Michael Harrington. Harrington was... um, the leading socialist thinker in the United States, you know, post-World War II, I would think you could say that. And Mike always said to me, he said, you always make a mistake by personalizing and thinking that people are doing things in a malevolent way. You know, he would say, Leonid Brezhnev, this is dating myself a bit, but (laughs) Leonid Brezhnev gets up every morning and says, gets into his Cadillac Mm -hmm. and says, how do I build socialism today? Mm -hmm. These aren't fundamentally bad people. I mean, most of these people, they do think they're doing the right thing. Now, the problem is that when you have people who are essentially engineers and nerds, and you have them making judgments about issues that require something, a more historically rooted intelligence, that's a big problem because they don't, they just simply don't know. That's why the conspiracy theories are are wrong in the sense that I don't think these guys get together and say, well, how can we screw the conservatives? That's not, that's not how mm-hmm. it happens. Mm-hmm. It happens because maybe somebody in the company pushes a particular algorithm, which eliminates certain kinds of views. And as Jim Wonderman, who, who runs the Bay Area Council, which is the biggest business group in the Bay Area, he said, you have to understand the people who run these companies are scared 
of their own employees. Now, is it most of the employees? No, it's like on a college campus. You could have 6,000 people on the college campus and there could be 150 very loud, very motivated people. Same thing. You can have Google, you could have 50,000 employees. Probably most of them are just regular people doing their jobs, trying to make money. But there's a group that's organized and active and monitors everything, and they are able to drive that agenda. So, you know, it's again, as Jim explained to me, I thought it was very interesting. It's not like, you know, these guys are sitting there saying, well, you know, we want to control thought. They have to control thought to control their companies. Before we dig down a bit more into the oligarchy and the clerisy and the relationship between those two things and, and the impact that that is having on contemporary society, I want to talk a bit about how we got here. So one of the things you describe well in your book is the emergence of feudalism. And you also describe that feudalism is now used as a dirty word all the time. I often use feudalism <laughs> to signify something that I think is really bad. But you talk about the way in which feudalism itself was not a conspiracy or necessarily evil, but emerged in response to a vacuum left by the decline of Roman rule and other forms of governance. Do you think there's a similar dynamic now? Because I'm often struck by the extraordinary power that is wielded by a small group of people today. And I think to myself that often these are not very impressive people. These are not people who have tanks and machine guns. <laughs> so, so is it a similar situation where this new aristocracy and their attendant guardians of correct thought and so on, have they moved into a vacuum left by events of the late 20th century? You couldn't have put it better. I think that's exactly what's happened. Um, one, You've seen the evisceration of local economies outside of the big metropolitan centers. You know, as a, a MP said to me when I was working in London, he said, basically, outside of the Southeast, the greater London area, basically, the, the UK is Russia. There is no economy. I mean, it, one LSE researcher said the economy of most of England is the pub. <laughs> and we see that beginning to happen in the U.S. Now, mm. the U.S. is more resilient, has greater resources, and we don't have quite the sort of idiotic ruling class that you have. Ours is, we didn't inherit everything. <laughs> but the reality is that these people have been able to achieve this kind of power because many of the mainstream institutions, the corporations, you know, I, if I was a younger person, I would be doing a book about where the hell were all the book publishers and the, and the movie companies and, and the financial companies when we knew the digital thing was happening, it was going to happen. And they sat by and sat around and watched other people essentially eat their businesses. Mm. And, you know, you think about the blockbusters of the world and you, you think about the movie studios who are now a shadow of what they once were. The mm. publishing companies are a joke from what they once were. I know because I've been publishing books for, oh God, over 30 years. So, you know, I think that A, the institutions were weaker. Then there was also the loss of local power. So mm. in other words, in the past, you might have had a business establishment in Manchester or in Chicago or in in Denver or in Atlanta that was independent, that thought for itself and had different interests and different points of view than maybe the other parts of the country. The, we've now essentially nationalized and internationalized these elites. And then, mm -hmm. of course, what you have, a major factor is globalization. And what's interesting about globalization, and I've been going to China since early 1980s, 
China has a very clear view, I think, of what it wants to do. It wants to use technology and some of the market mechanism to create a new dominant middle kingdom. That's the game. Who are they competing with? A bunch of weak-kneed Europeans who even the idea of being a competitive economy is, is difficult for them, who see themselves not in the, in the aggressive manner of Europeans of the past, but, but really as very much kowtowing. Much of the American establishment is the same way. We'll look at the NBA as an example, where you know basically when a GM says we should have solidarity with the people of Hong Kong, and he gets slapped down because China is such a huge part of the market. And LeBron James, who my friend uh, Glenn Reynolds calls Peking James, you know, basically, you know, says, oh, no, no, we shouldn't support the people in Hong Kong. Well, I mean, the same guy is backing Black Lives Matter. So, you know, other words, the ability to move in because institutions are weak. And I'll, I'll tell you, it has a negative effect on the other side. The mass media, the mainstream media, the New York Times, who I used to write for, the Washington Post, who I used to write for, CNN, which I used to be on a lot, NPR, which I used to be on a lot. These institutions, particularly in the Trump era, seem to have gotten unmoored and mm-hmm. are, have become little more than, you know, sort of like a, an American version of Pravda. Not that everything they say is wrong. Sometimes they say good things. Sometimes they do great reporting. The problem is there's a huge part of the population that no longer believes them. So what you get is you get one group of people who basically follow the party line and hold on to it, have no knowledge of any contrary information. Like I teach a class on propaganda at Chapman University. And one of the things I always say to my kids is the real problem isn't fake news. You know, Trump is a moron. You know, it isn't fake news. These people aren't liars, as Mike Harrington would say. They think they're doing a good job. It's what I would call sins of omission. Mm -hmm. Other words, opposite points of view. Like, for instance, I'm going to write about climate change. I'm going to say, look what's going to happen in these years, this year, and this year. But do you ever look at the past and what the predictions were of the past? I mean, the planet should have died years ago. You know, other words, anything that's a contrary point of view, like let's say with the COVID lockdowns, I'm not an epidemiologist. I can't tell you what the best thing to do is, but I like to hear different points of view of people who actually do know something. Mm -hmm. And now we're sort of saying, no, it's got to be this party line. And personally, I think we are going to see with climate change exactly what we saw with the pandemic, which is the clerical elite in alliance with the aristocracy gaining more and more control over every aspect of life and telling us how we can and cannot live. You know, obviously, you and I should not get on a plane ever, but John Kerry can take his <laughs> private jet any place he wants to go. So I think what we're seeing is something that is, and this is very medieval. You think about the incredibly brutal aristocracy, the real aristocracy before they, you know, they became what they became more recently. But, you know, they ruled because they were good fighters. They were very tough people. They could do horrible things. They could wipe out villages and go rape the daughters of, of the peasants. And then they could they could give the church, you know, a bunch of money to, to build a, a cathedral and all is forgiven. We're in the same kind of world where there are essentially one set of rules for the vast majority and another set of rules for the celebrities, for the, mm-hmm. for the elite bureaucrats, and of course, for the aristocracy. 
you know, it always kills me when I'm being told by people here in California, by the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world and by the very heavily financed green lobby. Well, we can't have suburbs anymore. They're really bad and everybody should live in an apartment. And they've got three or four houses. Or, you know, <laughs> you, you open up Yahoo and it's filled with all these politically correct celebrities and they're all on vacation somewhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I promised my wife not to get on the plane until I get my second vaccination. What is it? One set of rules for one group, mm-hmm. one set of rules for another. And if you don't think that's not feudalism, you're wrong because that's what feudalism is about. And that's where Orwell's great comment that some animals are more equal than others is very apt. The part of your book that really struck me in in terms of your description of neo-feudalism was precisely on this issue of the staggering hypocrisy, one rule for us, another rule for you, the plebs. That is very, very apparent in the current era. And you give the example of supposedly environmentally minded members of the oligarchy and the clerisy who who lecture the rest of us to stop having and so the many family and the royal <laughs> family who you know literal descendants of aristocracy who lecture the rest of us to stop going on planes and then fly around the world themselves and i wanted to to talk to you about that because you also mentioned that alongside the emergence of this new aristocracy the emergence of this new clerisy these kind of jealous guardians of economic power and cultural influence. There is also arrestiveness in the masses. And you talk about how in some ways our era is comparable to pre-revolutionary France in the sense that there are large numbers of people out there, I think, who look upon the new elites with disgust almost. And they are horrified by their hypocrisy, horrified by their lavish lifestyles and their decadence and their temerity in lecturing the rest of us on how we should live. I wonder how pronounced you think that restive feeling is and and how political you think it could become? Well, of course, we've just experienced Donald Trump. So, you know, (laughs) I mean, a, a person who should never have been elected president was certainly not a respectable choice of any kind. But people were so pissed off and they saw Hillary Clinton as the epitome of this sort of entitled ruling class. But you see it in Europe. I understand that Marine Le Pen is doing very well in the polls Mm -hmm. against Macron in France. You You have powerful grassroots and sometimes very ugly movements in Austria and Sweden and Finland and in the Netherlands. There's obviously the Gilles in France. I mean, because part of what happens is they say, well, you know what? The price of gas is too low. Mm-hmm. So we're going to double the price of gas. Well, you know, if, if I have a limousine or I live in Paris and I can, I can afford to walk to my place of business, that's one thing. What else if I'm living in a small town in Normandy and I've got to drive 20 miles to work every day? Mm-hmm. And we see the same thing here in California, where the ruling class in California basically wants everyone to live on top of each other. Meanwhile, they have their estates. They have, you know, Mark Zuckerberg buys up the lots around him, so he has more space around him. Meanwhile, if Mr. Gonzalez, who's worked his ass off all his life, wants to buy a 2,000-square-foot house in Riverside, California, you don't want them to do that, and you want to make life as miserable for them. They literally talk about, we want to make traffic so bad that people will take transit. Yeah. Despite the fact here in Southern California, in Los Angeles, we spent $20 billion on a light rail system 
And uh, we have fewer people as a percentage taking transit now than we did in 1990. And what we're finding now is that they're going to double down on transit and density after we've had this experience with a pandemic, which for many reasons has been worse in dense areas, has exposed the terrible consequences of incredible inequality and poverty in our inner cities, including in London. Mm. I mean, I just read a piece the other day where there are parts of, uh, I guess, East London that have the highest COVID rates in the UK. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you think that is? You know, it's because people are living in crowded conditions, they're, they're working in frontline jobs, and they don't necessarily have the best health care. So, you know, the bottom line is we are creating the basis for some sort of version of the Jacquerie or some of the, or was it what, Tyler, some of the, the great <laughs> British peasant rebellions. Mm. And we don't know what form it could take. It could take a kind of right-wing, sort of scary, white nationalist form like we saw at the Capitol. Or it could take a anarchist, far-left version like we saw in our cities during the summer. Yeah. I think both are scary. I wanted to come on to that question of of what forms these restive rebellions and ballot box rebellions and so on, what form they might take in, in the future. Because one of the interesting things in your book, and a few other people have written about this too, is what is referred to as the defection of the working class from the political left. So, I mean, this is apparent across the Western world. I mean, you can see it very clearly in Europe. You know, the social democratic parties, the traditionally left parties, the Labour parties have become increasingly the playthings of the educated elites, graduate classes, what we refer to as the middle classes. But I think in the US, you would call them the upper middle classes. There's been a very clear split between working class people and the parties that traditionally represented them. Could you just explain to us why you think that's happened? Is it because those parties have been sucked into this new aristocracy, this new clerisy? And alongside that, what do you think that means for the working classes? Have they got no option but to turn to the populist right? Or is there something else that they can do? Well, of course, in the United States, we also have a populist left. I mean, one of the great challenges President Biden is going to face is not from from the right, but from the left, Mm. from Bernie Sanders Mm. and from AOC, from what they call the squad, from the far left spectrum. So it could go either way. But I think that what we are seeing is in virtually every Western country, the socialists in France, the Labour Party in the UK, the Labour Party in in Australia, the Liberal Party in Canada, my wife's Canadian, they've all become essentially, as my friend Fred Siegel has put it, a coalition of the overeducated and the (laughs) undereducated. You know, the graduate students and people on welfare Mm -hmm. vote the same way. And they they are also supported by this aristocracy. You know, they now have so much more money than the old conservative aristocracy. I mean, the, the old conservative aristocracy probably look at the, the new aristocracy the way the old Roman aristocrats looked at the barbarians who were taking over, <laughs> because it's so, something like that. So, you know, fundamentally, you're seeing is the working class is being forced to look elsewhere. You know, now the big problem the left has had, and I think... This is a problem that I talk to my my friends on the left, of the old left. If you're going to back the AOC, you know, sort of Green New Deal, how is that a good deal for working class people? Mm. Are you saying price of housing has to go up, price of energy has to go up, the degree of homelessness and energy poverty in even a country like Germany 
is, you know, shocking, really. And so, you know, what you've got is you've got a working class who really is moving. And by the way, I would say a lot of the middle class, because a lot of the middle class is becoming working class. Mm. The next generation, let's say the millennial generation kids, aren't going to do what their parents do. They have less wealth. They're not going to be able to buy a house. If you live in Southern California, you live in New York City, you live in London, forget about ever owning a house. You're going to be a renter your entire life. That's the reality. And so you've got this group of people who are very alienated. And the question is, how do they deal with it? And I think there are going to be three responses. One is going to be like, let's say, Mélenchon in France, you know, sort of a far left appeal. Now, I think that the Bezoses of the world will try to squash that, you know, People don't write about the fact that Bezos made a particular target of Bernie Sanders mm-hmm. when he was running for president. Then you, you also have the second option, which is a right-wing option. You know, example, Salvini and Orban. And you don't seem to have that kind of, you know, Farage had some of that in mm-hmm. England. But I think your current prime minister is just another tough, I think. You know, so I'm not going <laughs> to. Some of the things that the British conservatives do, even American liberals look at and say, what? And then there's what I think is going to happen, uh, if I was to predict, and I call it oligarchical socialism. Mm. And this is, again, like, you know, we could go and look at Aldous Huxley on this particularly. But basically, you can say, look, the oligarchs realize that they can't have a vast class of starving, angry people with pitchforks out there. Like, they really don't want to see their heads on pikes. So what are they going to do? Well, here's what I think we're seeing. And this is where the COVID thing is very scary. We're going to give a lot of money to people Mm -hmm. for not working, essentially. I think of my daughter who works at Home Depot. She works very hard. She has a hard physical job. And, you know, she makes, you know, let's say $16, $17 an hour. There are other people who they don't even go to work because they're going to make more money staying home and doing nothing. This is where what the oligarchs, I think, are moving towards. The oligarchs are moving towards what they call universal basic income. Yep. And so what we'll do is we'll give everybody, let's say, $2,000 a month and a housing subsidy. And, you know, if they work, they work. Maybe they're Uber drivers for a few years or, you know, they're doing DoorDash or they're, you know, they're doing some sort of part-time work. Maybe they're dealing drugs, whatever. And what is this class? A, they're probably not going to have kids because they're going to be living in small places. They have no savings for their children anyway. They're going to live in a little apartment. They're going to play video games. They're going to live on on their iPhones. They're going to water their plants, smoke pot, drink. And that's the future. Yeah. I don't think the oligarchs and the clerisy want another generation of people who want to start businesses, own homes, you know, advance. I don't think that's really the interest. The interest is let's sort of numb the working class and make them compliant. And then there'll be different techniques. You know, you can use race, you can use gender, you can use those things to drive the politics. But fundamentally, I think this oligarchical socialism, which is really in in a funny way, somewhat like what you have in China, except in the Chinese actually believe in work, Mm. which is why under this circumstance, our oligarchs will lose to their oligarchs because fundamentally encouraging people not to work doesn't work. And by the way, 
a great analogy is um, my background's in classical history is ancient Rome, bread and circuses. Yeah. When the Roman aristocrats brought the slaves back from their conquests, they essentially replaced the old Roman working and middle class with slave labor. And, and the way that they could keep order is, you know, providing free food and entertainment for, for the Roman citizens. And something like that is where we're headed. I think your term oligarchical socialism is very, very apt. And I find universal basic income to be one of the most chilling ideas of modern times, because it's the thing that is most expressive of the new neo-feudalism that you write about in the sense of throwing money at working people in order that they no longer are working people and are no longer, it is presumed, will no longer be a problem to the aristocracy and the clerisy. But but as you were saying that, it, it made me think about a contradiction at the heart of this stuff, because you talked about the fact that the US has a populist left as well as a populist right. There are populist left movements in, in Europe too, of course, and Britain has gone through I mean, they posed as populist left, but the, the Jeremy Corbyn movement, right. they posed as populist left, but they weren't really populist. And in fact, they balked at the populist expression of the people who voted for Brexit. So you have these movements, but I wonder how challenging the left-wing version of populism really is, because firstly, the evidence suggests that they are fairly easily co-opted into neoliberal structures or into the new clerisy. I mean, if you look at the Jeremy Corbyn movement, for example, over time, they they were bought off by the upper middle classes who were fighting to remain in the European Union, who depicted the vote for Brexit as the worst thing that ever happened. You know, the, the left was brought into that narrative. But more broadly than that, isn't one of the ironies of contemporary capitalism that its ideology is anti-capitalism? So all these new, incredibly powerful, economically and politically, all these new capitalist elites or neo-feudalists, I'm sure most of them would have fairly anti-capitalist leanings. I mean, they all are pro-Black Lives Matter, or or they at least make a pose of being pro-Black Lives Matter. They engage in various initiatives and campaigns to raise awareness about the problems of inequality and so on. Is that all just a pose? Or is there a deep contradiction within the new oligarchy where they possibly are their own gravediggers? Well, that's a really interesting idea. And, and I think that th- there is a danger. And I have talked to people uh, you know, at that oligarchical level, if you will, to say that you know, the danger is you're squashing the embrace of capitalism by destroying small business. You know, I don't know if this is happening in the UK. I assume it is. But what we're seeing is small business is getting wiped out. Mm-hmm. In the in the pandemic, yeah. the longer the lockdowns are, yeah. the more we buy from Amazon. The only people who seem to be able to adjust, let's say, are the big chains. You know, they they have the best technology, and so you know they've done okay. So what essentially you're you're doing is you're wiping out the middle class, you know, historic base. So the problem the left has is that first of all, one of the biggest problems is once they bought the climate agenda and. And this I've write, written about a lot. You can deal with GHG without destroying the economy and the middle class, but that's not the path that the ruling class wants. The ruling class wants, you know, to depress standard of living. Mm-hmm. You know, this whole idea of degrowth or the Great Reset. 
you know, if I'm a, a rich German capitalist and I have an estate and a country house and a beautiful apartment in Berlin and I fly in a private jet and I go all over the world, hey, I'm in favor of austerity for you, mm-hmm. you know? And so what happens is in this kind of system, the Googles and the Apples and the Amazons, what they essentially do is they, they hire all these lunatic who graduated from grievance studies at, you know, Harvard, and they give them great jobs in the HR department or mm-hmm. the PR department, or, and of course, the universities. The universities are, you know, uh, particularly if you take the faculty under the age of 50, and particularly in the social sciences, and now moving into the sciences, basically, there are opportunities for them to be easily bought off to be easily placated. And one of the ways you do this is instead of dealing with the fundamental issues of class, which an old social Democrat like me would focus on, Mm -hmm. what do you focus on is you focus on gender and transgender and the climate and race. So, you know, like I, I was talking to a group of students the other day and I said, you know, tell me what good would it do if Goldman Sachs hires 10 more black MBAs? those black MBAs are going to have lots of opportunities. And look, I think it's great. They want to hire them. Fantastic. But what does that do to the people in the South side of Chicago? What does that do people in the parishes of, of, of Louisiana? What does that do for the Latinos living in, on the Texas border or in the central Valley of California? Those are the people whose interests should be defended and should be considered the color of people's skin, their sexual orientation is secondary to their class, in my view. And by the way, that's going to be one of the more interesting issues, just to go back to your political point. In the last election, amazingly enough, Donald Trump did fairly well among Hispanics. He won 40% of the Hispanic vote in Texas. We've had Latinos, Asians, Muslims, Jews, all voted more for Trump this time than last time. So Trump lost the election with older white male upper middle class because his incredibly awful personality turned people off. He was just too nauseating to deal with. But there is this sort of movement. And here's the story. If conservative parties can get rid of the the white nationalist nature and become nationalist, but of a a multi-racial one, I think they have a better chance. You know, by 2030, the majority of the American working class will, will be Black, Hispanic, or Asian majority. You can't build a working class party with racist men. Yeah, absolutely. I really agree with that. And I I actually wanted to ask you about the class question. It's a bit of a chicken and egg question, I guess, which is because it seems to me very clearly that the new Clarice's political outlook and the new aristocracy's political outlook is very hostile to the politics of class. And that's often expressed not through the old Thatcherite approach of smashing trade unions, and although they do that, and, and they do engage in anti-union activities, but alongside that through the politics of identity, through the politics of race, the politics of gender, the politics of transgender. And we've seen that over the past year in particular with the institutionalization of critical race theory in some workplaces and the use of those theories to reprimand the workforce and to divide the workforce and to bring in new forms of political control in workplaces. But I I wanted to ask you how conscious you think this is, how conscious the anti-class component of this new clerical politics is, or is it rather that 
class politics had already declined. And, and what we're witnessing once again is the filling of a vacuum with a post-class divisive politics. Well, I mean, part of the problem is that, that the class politics, really with the exception to some extent of Trump in 2016, and then before him, uh, Rick Santorum, um, you know, again, I'm not endorsing or supporting either of them, but I, I think they saw there was an opening. That kind of politics is pretty rare now. And, mm-hmm. and you know, people will talk about the middle class, you know, I mean, they'll, they'll have lip service to these issues. But the reality is the issues that matter to the media, and even if, let's talk about the media just for a second. When I worked at the Washington Post in the mid-70s, a lot of the reporters were from working class families. It was a craft. You learned it like a, being an electrician. You learned it by doing it. Nobody cared where you went to school. By the time I left, my sense of it is that more and more of the people hired at the Post, hired at the Times, were of this very elite class, yeah. generally the children of the wealthy, and, you know, a certain number of them were maybe black, Hispanic, gay, whatever, you know, you, you fill in the blank. But their perspective was shaped more by their cultural identity than by their class identity. Yeah. And since they, they regarded their, in many ways, their position in the media as that of a prelate, as opposed to that of, of a journalist, I mean... You know, my poor wife has to listen to me when I'm reading the paper. And, I, and now I sometimes I don't even read it. I'm reading the paper and I say, where the hell was the editor? Mm-hmm. Did you ever think of calling somebody else? Like, for instance, in coverage of California, you know, which is my state. In California, I've been writing about the fact that we now have the worst poverty, the highest level of inequality. You know, I could fill in the blanks. You cannot report that in the mainstream right. media because... If California is the epitome of progressive politics, things can't be bad there. And yet we do studies and we show that, for instance, African-Americans and Hispanics do better in other parts of the country than they do here, and they're leaving. I mean, you have this weird kabuki going on. Like you take Portland, a city that has essentially wiped out its black population, almost has no black. It's the whitest city in America. You get the most lunatic race politics there. Mm-hmm. So the gap between the ideology of politics and the reality of politics is completely gone. You know, it's not like, you know, Black Lives Matter has effective cells in, in every community. It's not like this is a mass movement. And you look at who are, who are the representatives of, of Black Lives Matter. Well, here in L.A., what would you expect? Like a, a professor at a Cal State. That's exactly who you get. Yeah. You know, so... Other words, it's not that they don't acknowledge class. They would acknowledge it. It's just that it's so wrapped up in other things and that they're not willing to deal with the fact that, you know, as as I try to point out to them, when you, let's say, make energy two, three times more expensive here than other states, A, you're creating energy poverty here. And you know what? Any company that uses energy is going to go somewhere else. Yeah. You know, like, like for instance, they have this idea we're going to go all electric on the trucks at the port of Los Angeles, which they don't, the the type of long haul trucks don't even exist there. If they, when they come, they're going to be very expensive. Who do you think is going to get hit? You know, they're going to say, Hey, you know what? We're going to, we're going to ship our products to Houston where we can still have the the cartage done at, at a reasonable cost. Who loses out? Overwhelmingly Hispanic truck drivers. That's who loses. Yeah. 
but nobody cares. Yeah. I mean, look, I'll give you one of my favorite examples, Latinx. I don't know if you've ever heard this. <laughs> 3% of Latinos use that term, 3%. And yet parts of the Latino intelligentsia and the universities and the media impose, you have to use lat- Latinx. So I now use Hispanics because I refuse to use Latinx. <laughs> You know, like as a Hispanic friend of mine, she said to me, she said, Latinx sounds like a like like a brown version of Kleenex. <laughs> You're listening to the Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spiked publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free and we want to keep it free and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. Listening to you talk there about these various tensions and conflicts, I wanted to ask you what you think is the possibility of the reassertion of class interests. Because the thing that I've always been interested in is... I've always been primarily interested in class politics. I've always been primarily interested in the role of the left as giving expression to people who were traditionally left out of politics, historically speaking. And there have been events in in recent years which have seemed to have a class component to them. I mean, I think the vote for Trump in some ways was a coalition, a curious coalition in some ways between different sections of working class communities. The vote for Brexit here in the UK is referred to by some old leftists as a working class revolt. I mean, the more working class you are, the more likely you were to have voted for Brexit. And one of the interesting tensions in the UK is that membership of the Labour Party is under Jeremy Corbyn became even more middle class than it had been under Tony Blair. Uh, And you had this period in, in the 2019 general election in the UK where you had all these very upper middle class graduate activists for the Labour Party knocking on doors in the north of England or in Wales trying to convince people to vote for Labour. And of course, those people were saying, you don't care about us, you don't care about jobs, you don't care about housing, and you know the kind of sections of society who are not interested in the cult of environmentalism, not interested in the cult of identity, but are interested in more tangible issues of democratic power, economic power, having greater wealth, having access to jobs, and so on. So things are happening where there does appear to be, I don't know, perhaps there is an emerging class consciousness, or do you think that's going too far? Well, it's going to be interesting. I think there is. I think there is, one might want to call it the pushback phenomenon, mm. where people just say, enough of this already, you know. <laughs> and I'll tell you one, one of the places here in America, and I think it may also be true in the UK as well, and certainly true in, in France, which is people are sick and tired of having their past destroyed. Yeah. And the, the New York Times, which I think, you know, to me, has lost all credibility with what they call the 1619 Project. And this idea that the entire history of America is about slavery, that that is what drove us, as many good left-wing historians have pointed out, the reason the North won the war is it had four times as many people and it it had all the industrial capacity. The wealth in in America was overwhelmingly in the North. Mm. I mean, that's why they won the war. Mm. You know, I mean, I don't know. Isn't that pretty clear? I mean, Karl (laughs) Marx understood that completely. (laughs) One of the things that keeps, let's say, working class people affiliated with the country 
is this sense of patriotism. We're proud of our, our history. That doesn't mean there aren't horrible things that have happened, mm-hmm. but we, there are great things. I, I think my family coming from Russia and, you know, in two generations doing very well, in, you know, in this country, you know, I owe it. And by the way, my grandfather never saw a black person until he moved to New York because they, they weren't thick on the ground in, in Russia at that time, for sure. You know, so, you know, I always think about the, the Second World War and the the British working class going to defend the empire mm. well, because they believed they were part of something. Now, they may not have had Winston Churchill's values, but they understood that they were part of Britain and Britain was something worthwhile. When you tear away the British heritage, the American heritage, the French heritage, you have nothing left. And to give credit where credit may be due, unfortunately, I think President Xi is going in the exact opposite direction. He's pushing Chinese tradition. He's pushing Chinese values. He's pushing the history of China Mm. in a very aggressive way. At the same time, our intellectuals and our media are deconstructing our very basic identity. And if you take away our identity as Americans or as British, and we start to say, no, you're actually a transgender woman, or you're actually a an environmentalist, you know, loyal to planet Earth. How do you hold your society together under those circumstances? Why should working class people do anything but demand a check? Mm-hmm. That's a really important point because it's it's so clear now that almost every identity is acceptable apart from national identity. And the reason seems pretty obvious because national identity is actually a realm in which you can be a powerful person. You can be a citizen, you can be a player in society. You actually have a vote which can determine the shape of society, the future of society. So national identity, I think, is it seems pretty obvious to me why so many members of working class communities would want to hold on to national identity because they recognize that the nation and what is contained within the nation, which is democratic structures, is their greatest guard against some of the threats that you and I've been talking about and which you write about in your book, which are the the vagaries of globalism, the cult of environmentalism, the new aristocracy, the new clerisy, these increasingly internationalized forces. How do you guard yourself against that? You do it by putting up the borders, wrapping yourself in the national identity to a certain extent, and most importantly, emphasizing the importance of democracy, the importance of a people within a territory to determine who comes into that territory, what taxes these global players should pay, what rules they should abide by. So lots of people have commented on the contemporary tension between closed and open internationalism and nationalism people who believe in globalism and people who believe in the nation. Do you think that's one of the key dividing lines in terms of the tensions that you and I have been talking about? Yeah, I, I, I think it is. And it, and by the way, it has some, some medieval mm-hmm. parallels because remember the the heart of the particularly the, the Dark Ages was post-national. It was you were part of Christendom. You were part of this greater yes. community. You were part of a particular place tied to a particular geography. You know, similarly, you know, when the Islamic empire came into into being, it was based on the idea of Islam. It was a transformative idea. And whether you were in Saudi, what we now call Saudi Arabia or, or Syria or Egypt, but their identity was Islamic. So the problem is for people, and, and I think this ties to family. I mean, one of the frightening parts of what we see, and I've seen this quoted by UN officials, 
and it's in the Black Lives Matter program, family. They're not interested in the family. They're not interested. Actually, the family is like the nation state is a way of preventing the kind of atomization that you need in order to create the kind of world that, you know, the ruling class seems to want to create. By the way, I don't think that necessarily they all sit there and plot it out. I think things happen because it's in people's interests and it's also in their interests not to say anything. I mean, we just had something happen yesterday where the Dallas Mavericks, uh, Mark Cuban, decided they're not going to play the national anthem before games in Dallas, Texas. Mm-hmm. You know, like, what are you thinking? You know, how out of touch can you possibly mm-hmm. be? A friend of mine who was a former Mexican <laughs> soccer player said to me, he said, if, if players did that in Mexico, they would be killed. <laughs> you know, that, you know, <laughs> they would never put up with that. I mean, this idea that all the sacrifices that mm-hmm. previous generations make, you know, and I'm old enough to remember, you know, you know, because I would talk to my uncle who was at Leyte Gulf or my, another uncle was at Pearl Harbor. You know, they gave up a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a heritage to pr- protect and, and to wipe that heritage out. And even worse mm. than that, to make that heritage something to be ashamed of. I mean, look, the United States has done some horrible things, you know, with African-Americans, with Native Americans over time. But A, African-Americans have made some considerable progress. You know, we did lose 600,000 people in part to end slavery. We have much to be to be proud of, as does the UK. And and to flush that down the toilet is to it diminishes particularly that working middle class person whose life isn't glamorous, mm-hmm. who can't get on a private jet and go in the middle of the winter to some resort and hang out with a international coterie of of the beautiful people. That identity with the country is so important. And to see that, you know, systematically destroyed. I was glad to see, by the way, that that some French intellectuals are now standing mm-hmm. up against this on the left, as well as Macron, and I think that's that's healthy. But you can't strip people of their of their religious heritage, of their family, of their community, of their traditions. I mean, one of my moments I most enjoyed when I was in the UK was going to East Anglia and having the local businessman. He didn't want to talk about his business; he wanted to talk about all the Roman ruins and yeah. all the things that they were discovering. Mm-hmm. This connection to the past is so critical. And what I'm finding, uh, you know, I don't know if you teach at all, but kids don't know any history. Yeah. Nobody's taught them anything. I mean, they're not bad kids. They're not evil. You know, the teachers can say anything about anything, and they don't know to say no. Like yeah. this one student came to me and said, the Electoral College was designed, according to my professor, to preserve slavery. And I said, Really? Actually, the Electoral College was there so small states would have representation. It was proposed by Connecticut, and it was supported by South Carolina. And the opposition came from New York and Virginia, which were the big states at the mm-hmm. time. It wasn't about slavery, or my wife's in a book group, and one of the, a grade school teacher is saying, well, the police were invented to catch runaway slaves. I said, do you ever see gangs of New York? Do you understand why we, why New York needed police? Why the London Bobbies were there? Because people forget that Dickens, London was an incredibly dangerous place. Yeah. And you had to have police to control it. You know, what I find is just this, it's like what, what Hitler and Stalin, Mao, all of them think. Young people, if you can control what they know and you control how they think, you can control the future. And our job in our sort of, you know, quasi-Viet Cong response, which is, you know, small groups, new publications, 
and at least as long as we don't get deplatformed, I think our job is to is to help these young people understand not just the reality of our history, but the appreciation of it, the tremendous accomplishments and and the tragedies of of our past. But that's what makes us human beings. We're not digits. We're we're people, and we carry in us DNA of. In my family, you know, people who experienced, you know, the Holocaust or uh, people who experienced wars, who, who left the poverty of one place to find opportunity in another place. I always like to tell my daughters about their uncle, who was General Allenby in Palestine in 1917, that this is part of your heritage. This is what you're carrying with you. It's part of what, and if we dismiss that, then we are completely capable of being manipulated into believing whatever the ruling class wants us to believe. And it could be on the right, it could be on the left. I mean, tyranny is built on ignorance. And what we're doing is we're engineering ignorance on a massive scale. And as a good friend of mine who builds apartments in Silicon Valley said to me once, he said, I have never run into a group of people who have less knowledge of the impact of what they do. Yeah, that's a very good description of the dangers of erasing history or the dangers of the war on history. And I think one of the problems with the year zero mentality that we currently have, where everything that came before us was wrong and immoral and disgusting, and we apparently are morally pure, everything starts from now. I mean, that does prime people for manipulation, for transforming their minds into believing that the current moment is the perfect moment and everything must be done in our image. You're absolutely right to say that one of the problems with the revisionism that is you can see very clearly in the US at the moment, particularly in relation to the issue of race and slavery and various terrible things that happened in American history, one of the problems with this notion that racism is America's original sin, which it can never wash clean, it completely negates the agency and the struggles of vast numbers of people who did improve American society, right? People who took part in the Civil War, Frederick Douglass, the Civil Rights Movement. And that's one of the things that worries me most about the new racialism, the, the new politics of racial identity, which is that it's very pessimism. It's, it's, it's notion that history is this unchangeable force weighing down on our shoulders and privileging white people and hurting black people. It actually negates the action that was taken by vast numbers of people through history to make the society we currently live in. And you can see a very similar thing in the UK. I think the reason lots of working class people in Britain are very sensitive to historical erasure and to the depiction of Britain as just a litany of criminal offences is because they know that that's not true. They know that huge leaps forward have been made over the past 300 years for freedom, equality, democracy, which is precisely why we live in the country we currently live in. And, and, and why people from around the world yeah. go to Australia, the UK, New Zealand, Canada, the US. Including my parents. I'm, I'm a first generation Briton. I'm the first generation of my family to live in this country. And I think sometimes that kind of experience can give you a, a different view of what's going on. So I often watch these kind of new elites poo-pooing British history. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why are you engaged in this constant war against the past? There's a, one more question I wanted to ask you, because I'm conscious that we're slightly running out of time. You mentioned there, as you were speaking, you mentioned um, us Viet Cong style dissenters and people who have different points of view and people who want to challenge the consensus. 
if we don't get deplatformed. So I just want to finish by asking you about something that you write about very well in your book, which is not only the concentration of economic power and social power, but most worryingly of all, I think, cultural power, intellectual power, the, the way in which this new aristocracy aided by the clerisy is able to determine the political, social, moral narrative. What do you think is the best way we can challenge that? What do you think is the best way we can ensure there is less and less deplatforming and more and more freedom of discussion? Well, I think what we have to do is A, be careful not to fall into traps where, you know, you make comments that are either clearly untrue or or misleading or misogynistic or racist. You know, that's not the way to get mm. where you want to go. I think the other thing we, you know, what we need to do is to say, look, what the progressive ruling class, if you want to use that term, wants is to say anybody who doesn't support us is a QAnon, Donald Trump conspiracy theorist. And we have to rise above that. And we have to be able to say, look, I don't even consider myself a conservative. I mean, I would be perfectly happy with some very fairly radical, you know, class-based changes in the United States. I would be totally in favor of a negative income tax, you know, where people, working class people would get more money for working. Mm -hmm. I think there's lots of things we can, we can deal with climate change by encouraging work at home, using natural gas instead of coal, maybe looking at nuclear power. There are lots of ways that we can address these issues, but we have to be constructive. We have to avoid the sort of uh, crazy, extreme kind of thing. And we also even have to tell our friends in the upper classes and the controlling classes, if you get rid of us, the opposition becomes Alex Jones and QAnon and Donald Trump and the other, you know, sort of lunatics of the right. And, you know, we're giving an, an alternative perspective. So I, I think that we have to just keep, you know, doing that. I'm very thrilled with, with the new publications like Tablet and Spiked and, and Unheard and, and what, because Quillette, you know, all over the English speaking world, we have this rise of these very thoughtful, you know, middle of the road, skeptical publications. And what thrills me most of all, run by young people. There's where I see some hope. I, I see some hope in in that and that the fact that as long as we don't get the platform, we can use Zoom, we can use the internet to get this message across. But I think it's going to be very difficult because on the one hand, you're going to have the right pushing us to adopt their positions. I mean, I can't tell you how often I'll do a show and they'll like a lot of things I'm saying. But I can't stand Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump is, is a despicable human being mm. who has now led to a terrible situation in terms of information. Donald Trump is the wet dream of, of the controllers. You know, he's the one who you can say, you know, if you don't let us control things, you'll get a guy like mm. that. We have to be respectable and, re and resourceful. I'm always very pleased when friends of mine who have somewhat different points of view, my wife, my brother, say, you know, you really shouldn't have said that. That was wrong. You know, you really need to correct it or you need to say it in a bit better way. We have to understand we are in a battle to preserve the liberal democracy. That's really what, at the end of it. I'm not fighting to preserve the rights of capital or 
the sort of the abstract notion of liberty, you know, I mean, those are important things, but, but I think we have to say, look, we're fighting for the basics of society about liberal society, about the ability of society to change, the ability of people to have some influence for their being intellectual and political pluralism. That's what we should be fighting about. Joel Cockin, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.